Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and open your Bible to Psalm 14. Psalm 14. We're skipping Psalm 13 because you'll hear Psalm 13 in two weeks from our pastor, Ben Bratcher. So Psalm 14, as we continue our series through, through the first 15 Psalms on Sunday mornings. I'm reading out of the Christian Standard Bible. It's not too different from your own, but let's hear the Word of God and ask Him to help us meditate on it together. Hear the Word of the Lord. For the choir director of David, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Will evildoers never understand? They consume my people as they consume bread. They do not call on Yahweh, the Lord. There they will be filled with dread. For God is with those who are righteous. You sinners frustrate the plans of the oppressed, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that Israel, Israel's deliverance would come from Zion. From Zion. When Yahweh the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, we thank you that you speak, that you look down from heaven on the human race. We praise you that we cannot hide from you, that you know all things. We praise you that we can understand you, we can know you, we can know the truth, not because we're smarter than other people, we're not but because you open our eyes, you open our minds, you change our hearts, you cause us to be born again, you make us alive together in Christ. You speak your powerful word, your spirit moves amongst us and softens our hearts and makes us receptive and repentant and lowers our defenses and makes us self-critical that we might humble ourselves before you. And so, Father, we know that the one you look down on from heaven to earth with favor is the one who hears your word and trembles at your word. So, Father, give us a holy trembling at your word. Give us a higher expectation that you have a specific word for us today, for each of us individually and for us as Bethany Baptist Church from this word for this moment in our lives. So speak to us, Father, we pray. Give us ears to hear. Change us. Grow us. Only you can do this, Father. So we pray that you would do it for our good, for your glory, and for the spread of your gospel among our neighbors and the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. As believers, it's easy to set our minds on things below, not things above. It's easy for us to think about and be consumed with the things that are visible, not the things that are invisible. The things that are temporary, not the things that are eternal. The things in the kingdom of man, rather than the things of the kingdom of God. The things of earth, rather than the things of heaven. How do we increase our longing for heaven? How do we get into a mindset where we do set our mind on things above, not things of this earth? There are many strategies to this, but I don't know about you, but I've been a Christian for a long time, and it's frustrating and discouraging how easy, how easy it is to be consumed by the things of this earth. It could be a trial. It could be a good season of my life. It doesn't matter whatever season I'm in. There are different ways of being distracted from God and from the things of heaven onto the things of earth. 
and therefore not, I'm not able to engage the things of earth that I need to think about and engage properly. So it's discouraging, it's frustrating, and it's regular, it's repeated. This is a lifelong battle. We don't have to be stuck in this cycle of earthly-mindedness. We can grow to be more regularly and more consistently heavenly-minded. How? There's a lot of ways. Read the whole Bible to keep learning how. But from this passage, a sense of God's holiness, a sense of God's hatred for sin, if you can catch God's sense of holiness, if you could sense God's hatred for sin, that can help us long for heavenly things. If we can, be, if we can have a holy complaining, not a sinful complaining, a God-centered complaining, a God-centered frustration with the brokenness and especially the sins of earth, then we could set our minds more powerfully on heaven. So, here's the main idea of this passage. Focus on two elements of God and His enemies, of the relationship of God and His enemies, so that you live with longing and hope. Focus on two elements of the relationship between God and His enemies, so that you live with overwhelming longing and hope, so that you look to things above and not things of this earth. So focus on these two things, two elements about God and His enemies. You guys ready for the two things? In verses 1 through 3, you got the first element. In verses 4 through 6, we have the second element, okay? First element of the relationship between God and His enemies is this, first reality or fact. Unbelievers are sinful, verses 1 through 3. Unbelievers are sinful. Look at verse 1. So, first of all, before you get to verse 1, this is a psalm of David. If you're letting the, the psalms from Psalm 3 all the way to Psalm 14, if you're letting the psalms and the, the um, superscriptions carry the force of the psalm in your thinking, then David was running from Absalom in Psalm 3. And if that's somewhat in the background, David had many different issues, and the, the anonymity of the situation actually helps us apply it to many situations. But David was, he did face a civil war when his own son tried to dethrone him. And maybe things like that are in the background here. Certainly trials like that are in the background. So what does David claim in verse 1? Here's David's claim. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. So David claims that the fool, see, he claims a few things about the fool, that the fool says in his heart, there's no God. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. Now we say this often, you can't see my heart. You can't read my heart. And here David is claiming that he knows what's going on in somebody's heart. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. He's an atheist. He denies the existence of God. Now, they are not self-consciously saying, I don't believe a God exists. I don't believe the true God exists. I don't believe the triune God exists. They're not saying that self-consciously, but functionally they believe it. This is not, you know, it's true that we can't read each other's hearts with infallibility, but it would be foolish, it would be unbiblical to say that we can't get a sense of people's hearts. That's just not true. What did Jesus say about the heart? Out of the abundance of the mouth, the what? What speaks? The heart. And your actions come from your heart. Your heart beliefs are, are, are fully functional all the time. Whatever you believe will always flow out and function in what you say, what you think, and what you do. And you can't hide it. You can fake it and you can trick people, but you can't hide what's in your heart. And humans can see, if they have discernment to see, they can see, they can get a sense of what's in your heart. The fool says, David is saying, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. Not that they would say that again, the fools are not saying that directly or explicitly, but the function of their lives proves that they're saying in their heart of hearts, God doesn't exist. God is irrelevant to my life. God is functionally, for all intents and purposes, meaningless and absent from my reality, from my world. This is not, when he says the fool, he's not talking about someone who, who got bad grades in school, someone who's simple and gullible. The fool in the Bible can be really smart. 
You, you know this from Christianity, right? There are Christians who are really, really smart. And there are Christians who are not so smart. And there are non-Christians who are really, really smart. And there are non-Christians who are not so smart. So it's not talking about smart versus not so smart when it says the fool here. That's not the point. This is a moral, but it is intellectual, but it's a moral judgment before it's an intellectual judgment. It is those who are willfully ignorant with a closed mind towards God's wisdom and God's truth, as one study Bible says. Those who are willfully ignorant, those who have a closed mind to God's wisdom and God's truth, because they think they know better. They can even sincerely say, well, I'm checking my heart, and I I see that I'm not saying there's no God. Yes, you're saying that, and that's your perception of yourself, but your perception of yourself can be wrong, and someone's outside perception of you can actually be right. David's right here. David continues the description of the fool, of the unbeliever. They say in their heart there is no God. They are corrupt, like like spoiled cantaloupe. We have boxes of fruit, and yesterday, on, on Friday night during our town hall meeting, I held up. I said, hey, guys, there's a box of fruit, and we do have boxes of fruit in the back in case anyone wants them. They're going to perish pretty soon. But I held up different fruits, and I held up the cantaloupe, and it was just like a big piece of mold on half of the cantaloupe as I held it up. Corrupted, covered in mold, disgusting, useless, detestable, rotten from its own doing, from its own natural causes. It's corrupt, it's spoiled, it's gross, and that's how unbelievers are. They are corrupt. Not only that, continuing verse 1, they do vile deeds. Have you used the word vile lately? When was the last time you heard someone in normal language say the word vile? What about... Uh, the ESV translation, I think, abominable. Have you heard that used in a sentence lately? What does it mean to be vile? What is something that's a, what's a vile deed? What's an action that is vile and abominable, an abomination? Well, the idea is something, an action that's sinful, evil, but it's so bad that it's abhorrent. It's loathsome. Can you think of any actions that are abhorrent and loathsome? I thought about a lot of different ones, but I just thought I could just capture imaginations and um, probably don't want to just, I, I thought for a long time about this and I thought, you know what, I just need to not um, make one up. Let me just talk about one that's real and we don't have to dwell on this situation, but it's, it's, it's real in our cultural conversation. So we might as well say it here because it is a, an, action, an, an example of a vile deed. When police officer Derek Chauvin was kneeling on the back on the neck, the back of the neck of George Floyd for eight minutes, eight minutes and 46 seconds. Now, I'm not going to make the case here. We're not talking about ethnocentric oppression here right now because, and let's, let's actually step back and let's thank God for this. There are Christians who are debating the, the racism issue right now, but let's step back and thank God for this, that all Christians on both sides and even non-Christians are saying that that act was vile, right? That, that, that act was vile. It was abominable. It was abhorrent. It was loathsome. And that's how God sees the acts of unbelievers, not just that extreme. For us, it takes an extreme act for us to feel abhorrence. But what David's saying is that all their deeds are vile. All their deeds are abhorrent. All their sin is audacious. Reading on in verse 1, there was no one who what? No one who does good. No one who does good, David? Wow, that's quite a claim. Now, David is speaking about the fool. He's speaking about the one who is not wise. If, if we're taking the word fool, the opposite of fool is wise, right? Do you know what, what, how David defines wisdom? Look at Psalm chapter 2, verse 12. Or so, so, Psalm 2, verse 10. Psalm 2, 10. Now, so now, kings, be what? Be wise. And how do you be wise? Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, His Messiah. So how do you, be, how do you become wise? What is wisdom in Psalms? At least, in the, yeah, to the Psalter. What is wisdom? Wisdom is receiving instruction from God. It is serving the Lord, worshiping Yahweh, the true God, with reverential awe. 
It's rejoicing with him, rejoicing in him with trembling, and it is paying homage, it is worshiping the Son, his Messiah. That is wisdom. And the fool says, there is no God. So who are the ones that do, when he says there's none who does good, when David's saying there's no one who does good, he's not speaking about all humanity. He's speaking about all of those fools who do not worship Yahweh and who do not recognize his Messiah. Now, you might be saying, that's not how Paul uses it. I mean, Daniel just stood right here. Our brother Daniel just stood right here and read Romans 3, 9 through 28. And it says in Romans 3, Paul is taking Psalm 14. He's quoting it and he's saying all, not all, just unbelievers, even believers, all are sinners. Is that true or false? Are all sinners? Yes or no? Yes. But here's what I want to tell you, at least right now, is that that's not David's point. David doesn't disagree with Paul. David would not disagree with Paul. Paul's not contradicting David. But David in Psalm 14 is not making the universal statement that all have sinned, that all have, that there is no one who does good among among the foolish and the wise. He's speaking very specifically about the foolish, as we'll see later on. He's talking about those who oppose him, as we'll see later on. Look at verses 2 and 3. So that's David's, David's, David's thought, David's claim is that if unbelievers are sinful, David is saying, I could see their heart, they're saying they don't believe in God. They're vile, they do vile deeds, they're corrupt, there's none of them, none of them do good. And then God confirms this in verses 2 and 3, or at least David is claiming that God confirms this. Because you're saying, well, David, you're saying this, you're seeing this, but you're not God. Okay, well, verse 2, the Lord looks down from heaven on the human race, so who's looking down now? It's not David, it's the Lord, it's Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yahweh, that's what, when you see capital L-O-R-D, that's God's covenant name, so sometimes I'll say Yahweh instead of the Lord, for those of you who are listening for the first time to me. Yahweh looks down from heaven on the human race, on all of humanity, to see if there's one who is wise, just to see if there's one who's wise, one who seeks God. Now, this is, God can't miss when he looks because he's the true God. God can't miss because God knows all things. This is what theologians might call an anthropomorphism. You don't have to remember that word, but anthro, anthropos is man and morph is form. So it's where God takes the form of a man. Does God actually look down in heaven like God doesn't know if there's hearts? that are turned towards him, and so God is going to say, oh, now it's time for me to look. Now let me check. So then he, now he looks down on earth, and then he's like, oh, now I know that there's no one who, who, who seeks God, but I didn't know that before until I looked. Is that, is that true? Is that how it works? No. God knows all things, the end from the beginning. God has never learned anything new ever. He can't learn anything new as God. He's omniscient. He knows all things. And so this is just a, a poetic a way. It's giving an image of, of God looking down and seeing. But what does God see? What does God know? What's his conclusion as he looks down and sees? What does God know, according to verse 3? So he's checking. Does anyone seek God? Is anyone seeking the true God? All have turned away, verse 3. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So everyone turns away from God. That God sees all are corrupt, as discussed above, rotten, spoiled. There's no one who does good, and even if, if you're confused about that, David is saying that God sees that there's not even one. Again, I think Paul extends this to all humanity. David's point is he's speaking about his enemies, or God's enemies, as we'll see as we continue. So here's the point. All unbelievers are sinful. That's the first thing you need to know about God and his enemies, that when God sees his, en- his enemies, he sees that they are sinful. I'm not saying that they sin. I'm saying that they are sinful, that they are corrupt. It does say vile deeds, but the focus here is on their nature, not their actions. We have a lemon tree in our backyard that's big and needs to be pruned in many ways. It's not like, so, so if we could think of like a, a, the unbeliever like a tree it's not like the, that the lemon tree sometimes, it's not like the unbeliever is like a lemon tree that bears good fruit sometimes and bad fruit other times. It, they don't do good, right? It's always bad fruit. It always bears bad fruit. 
And it's not like when you see the bad lemons, you're saying, oh man, look at those bad lemons on the tree. Those lemons are making the tree corrupt. Is that true? No, those lemons are proving that the tree already is corrupt, that the roots are bad because the fruit is bad. The fruit doesn't make the root bad. The fruit proves that the root is already bad. The focus here in in verses 1 through 3 is not on the fact that unbelievers sin. It's the fact that they're sinners. So, it's not that unbelievers do bad things. That's true. It's that unbelievers are bad. Or to put it another way, they are not sinners because they sin. They sin because they're sinners. Does that make sense? Some of you kids are maybe a little confused. Let me say that again. They are not sinners because they sin. They sin because they're sinners. They are sinners by nature. We are sinners by nature. We've inherited sin nature under Adam. And so we sin because we're sinners. Our sin doesn't make us sinners. We're already sinners. And that's the point. So that's the first thing. Let's go to the second thing. So focus on two things about God towards His enemies so that you may live with His hope and longing. The first element is that unbelievers are sinful. The second element is that unbelievers sin against the just judge. Unbelievers sin, if you're taking notes, this point two, unbelievers sin against the just judge. Not only are they sinful, they do sin. And this is the focus of verses four through six, that they actually sin. Well, we're going to look at their sin in detail when we look at verses four and six, but let's get the, the main idea from this, these three verses, and it's in verse five. The very first half of verse 5, look at your Bible, look at verse 5, this very first half of it is um, kind of the climax of of these three verses. There, it says then, but if you have a footnote, it says there in your CSB, there is a better translation. There in their sin, there in their not calling on the Lord, they will be filled with what? Dread. Does anyone have a different translation? They will be filled with what? Terror? Fear? What are, what are they scared of? Have you ever been filled with dread? Not just when you're a little scared, you know, like where it completely takes over you and you can't think about anything else at all. It completely consumes you. Have you ever had that kind of fear before? This is not just they get a little bit of dread. They're filled with dread. And what are they, what are they scared of? For God is with those who are righteous. They're scared because God has taken the side of the righteous. Therefore, God is against them. Now, God is against non-Christians. God is against unbelievers, and He was against you when you were an unbeliever. God's wrath remains on those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. That's always true, but it's not always true that unbelievers are filled with fear. Most of the time, they're not. That's how they can function. If they were filled with appropriate fear for the judgment to come, they would not be able to concentrate on anything else. Have, Have any of you read the book, The Pilgrim's Progress? Raise your hand, some of you. Okay, I would encourage all of you to read that book. It's a very helpful and encouraging book. But the beginning of the book, Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim, not Pilgrim, Christian is his name. Who is a pilgrim? Christian. All the names are what they mean, so I would just think Pilgrim. Christian, he's with it. He's not even a Christian at this point in the beginning of the story. But he's so burdened that he can't talk to his family. His family can't tolerate him. His wife can't tolerate him. All he can think about is this huge burden on his back and the fact that they're going to, he's going to judgment and that they're all going to die. That's being filled with dread, at least for Christian in a way that saves him. But here, they will be filled with dread because they will take God's judgment. Now, Jesus calls this judgment, this final judgment, the outer darkness, the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. He calls it everlasting punishment or eternal punishment in Matthew 24 and 25. In Mark, I think, chapter 9, he says this is the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is what we call hell, or what Revelation calls the lake of fire. It might not be literal fire, but it's not less than fire. That imagery is weak to the reality. It's not greater than the reality. Even as a church family, what does our church confession say? It says this, God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world by Jesus Christ when everyone shall receive according to his deeds. The wicked shall go into everlasting and conscious punishment. The righteous in their glorified bodies into everlasting life in the new creation. 
they will be filled with dread because they will be judged in their sin. Now, to understand verses 4 through 6, I want to answer this question. Why will they be judged? Why are they filled why are they filled with dread because they're going to be judged? Why are they going to be judged? What have they done that deserves the judgment of God? I have two answers here. In verse 4, there's one answer. In verse 5 and 6, there's a second answer. Why will they be judged? Answer number one, because they don't get it. They just don't get it. They don't get the truth. They don't get it. Look at verse 4. Will, will evildoers ever understand? Will evildoers never understand? Will they ever get it? They don't get it. This question highlights their deception, their lostness, their confusion, and it's their hardness of heart. Remember, it's not a lack of knowledge. Nobody goes to hell for lack of knowledge. Nobody. Romans 1 says that they know, we know in our hearts that there's a God. It's clear from creation and conscience. No one goes to hell for lack of knowing God. That's actually why they go to hell, because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's why we deserve hell, because our hearts are hard. We don't get it. When will unbelievers, when will evildoers ever understand? Will they ever understand? David is asking the question with frustration, assuming they're never going to get it. They don't get it. Will they, will they never understand? And David answers his own question in verse 4 as he continues. They consume my people as they consume bread. They, knew, they do not call on Yahweh. The answer is that no, they, they, they won't get it. Why not? Because they consume, look at verse 4, they consume my people as they consume bread. Who's speaking here? Who's the author of Psalm 14? David. So when he says my people, whose people is this? David's people. This is David's people. And what are these unbelievers, these unbelieving fools, what are they doing to David's people in verse 4? They're what? Consuming them just like they consume what? Bread. Just another meal. They just eat up the people of God. They consume them. They devour them. These are David's people. Now, who are David's people? Go, go back to Psalm 2, 12 again. Go back to Psalm 2 and look at verse 12. Pay homage to the son. That's the messianic king, the Davidic king. Pay homage to the Son, the Messiah, or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion, for his anger may ignite at any moment. And who are, who are David's people? Who are the Messiah's people? In verse 12, all who what? All who take refuge in him. So those who take refuge in the Messiah are the people of the Messiah. And these unbelieving evildoers, these unbelieving fools, are consuming the people who take refuge in David, his people who take refuge under his kingship, his messiahship. They consume the messianic people. They oppose David, just like Absalom, his son, opposed David, the way King Saul opposed David, the way others opposed David. This goes back... Well, let me, I'll, let me say something. I'll, I'll come back to this. I'm going to come back to Genesis 12 in a second. Let's go to the, second, I mean, the, the next part of, of verse 4 here. Not only do they consume David's people, what else do they not do? They don't call on, the, on who? They don't call on the Lord. They don't call on Yahweh. Yahweh is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What did God promise Abraham? If you're not a Christian, this is, the, this is the good news of the story of the Bible. But what did God promise Abraham? God promised Abraham that through Abraham's offspring, through his descendants, God would bless cursed sinners. If all of the world is cursed in their sin, God would bless cursed sinners through Abraham's offspring, through a great nation and through Abraham's seed, he promised that he would bless them. Let me ask you a theological question here for you Christians who've read the Bible for a while. How do people get saved in the Old Testament? I want to hear from you guys. Through what? Atonement. What atonement? The sacrifice of animals. Okay. That's, that's a good piece of the truth. What else? The Ten Commandments. By obeying the Ten Commandments. That's a good guess. But that's a wrong guess. That's a good guess. That would be, yeah, that would be salvation by works. But that's, I mean, people, it's not clear in the Old Testament. So, so that's why this, I, I'm raising this question. I, I want to hear your guesses. Okay, they are chosen by God. By faith. Faith in, in uh, magic. Faith in magical trees. What? They, they believe in God counting them as righteous. 
Uh, they believe in God, and that belief in God, through faith in God, in, in any God, or in faith in Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they would be counted as righteous. Okay. Yes, that, that's right, okay? So, and that would be, I mean, when you do the atonement, Yahweh's prescribing the atonement, you see a sacrifice, and you trust in Yahweh's promise of forgiveness as you see the sacrifice. So it is by faith, not by works. Now, if you believe that, if you are redeemed, then like uh, Brian said, after that, you will do, you will obey the Ten Commandments, but that's the overflow of redemption, not the cause of how you get redeemed, right? Okay. There's a verse that, that Paul quotes, and you know this one. Paul says this in Romans 10, 13, after quoting it. Everyone who calls on the, actually, this is the quote. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And, and Paul's quoting Joel 2.32, which is saying not the name of the Lord, just Lord, but Yahweh. So let me read to you Joel 2.32. Well, here's my answer. How does someone get saved in the Old Testament? By calling on Yahweh. You can say by trusting in Yahweh, but calling on Yahweh, trusting in Yahweh. Okay? Here's Joel 2.32. Then everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved, for there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, as Yahweh promised, among the survivors Yahweh calls. So everyone, this is a prophecy of the future, that, that at the restoration, when Christ comes, that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. That's true. But even before that prophecy of Joel, David called on Yahweh and was saved. Or to, to the other brother's point, Jeff's point, when Abraham believed in God, calling on Yahweh, in, in, a, in effect, by his faith in Yahweh, he was justified. He was declared righteous. So even though we don't get it, well, um, even though, like, so speaking of the unbelievers here, why are they unbelievers? Why are they not saved, according to verse 4? They do not call on who? Yahweh. That's another way of saying they reject the gospel. They reject God's grace. They reject God's offer of salvation. They do not call on Yahweh. That is the definition of an unbeliever. They do not believe in Yahweh. They do not call on Yahweh. Because if they believe, then they would call on Him. Like Paul says, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? So if you don't believe, you don't call. If you're not a Christian, here's the good news for you. You can be saved today. You can call on Yahweh. You can call on the Lord Jesus to save you. Here is the gospel. God made you and I. He made us in his image to relate to him, but we have rebelled against God in our sin. And because we've rebelled, because we are corrupted, because we do vile deeds, because we have rejected God, God has rejected us. God will judge us for our sins. But here's the good news. God the Father sent His Son, Jesus the Messiah. He lived the life, He, he came into this world, lived the life we should have lived, died on the cross for sinners and rose from the dead so that everyone who repents from their sin and trusts in Jesus, everyone who calls on the name of Jesus, to save them will be saved. Kids, you don't have to be old to call on Jesus to save you. You can be saved at a young age. You can be saved now. If you understand what I'm saying, you can call on Jesus to save you, and Jesus will save you. If you trust in Christ and you call on Him to save you, everyone who truly calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you're not a Christian, I invite you, I plead with you, I call you, I command you in the name of Jesus to trust in Jesus and to call on Him to save you. Please do it for your good and for our celebration together. Okay, so why will these unbelievers be judged? The first answer is because they don't get it. How do we know they don't get it? Because they consume God's people and they don't call on who? They don't call on Yahweh. And actually, if you consume God's people, that shows you that you don't trust in Yahweh because you can't separate God's people from God. If you, if you, if you reject the Messiah's people, you reject the Messiah. If you reject the Messiah, you reject God. It's a package deal. You can't say, I love God, but hate the church. It doesn't work that way. That's what Paul tried to do. He tried to love God while he was persecuting the church, and then Jesus confronted him as God and said, why are you persecuting me? Because you can't separate consuming God's people from consuming God or from rebelling against God. They're a package deal. And that's the first reason why they don't get it, because they perhaps think that they can actually please God and know God apart from while they consume the people of God, and you can't do it. They don't get it. It's the first reason why they're, they're going to be judged, because they don't understand. Second reason why, they'll be, why, why, why they will be judged, verses 5 and 6, is because they don't side with God's people. I gave you a little preview of it, but let's expand it now. They don't side with God's people. Look at verse 5. 
they will be filled with dread because or for God is with the righteous. Why are they scared of God? Why are they going to be judged? Because God is with who? The righteous. And they are not righteous because they're opposing God's people. God is with the righteous. God is with the righteous. And we talked about righteousness before. Righteousness is at first declared upon you, credited to you by faith in Jesus Christ or by faith in the Messiah, calling on the Lord to save you. But that salvation, that justification, that declaration of righteousness and God's grace that continues from that will make you increasingly practically righteous. So when the Psalms talk about the righteous, it's not talking only about those who have been justified. And so those who have been justified and from that justification begin to live justly. Or it's those who have been declared righteous who begin by God's grace to continue growing in righteousness practically. The psalmists don't make that Pauline distinction that we love to make and need to make in clarifying the gospel. But these people do not side, these unbelieving fools do not side with God's people. They show that they're against God by being against God's people. Now look at verse 6. There's an interesting title for God's people in verse 6. I want you to notice it here. You sinners, you unbelieving fools, you evildoers, what do they do in verse 6, according to David? They what? They frustrate the plans of the righteous, right? They frustrate the plans of the Messiah's people. They frustrate the plans of David's people, right? It doesn't say that here. They frustrate the plans of who? The oppressed. The poor. Another translation would say the poor. And poor and oppressed are often synonymous in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament, because the poor are easily oppressed. They most easily get smashed by the system of economics and wealth, which is why God put in the very, embedded in the very economy of Israel to not get all of your crops, leave the corners of your crops of your field out so that the poor can actually take from those. Let me put that in modern terms because it's been convicting me and I'm trying to think about how to make it more practical in my life. Set aside some of your income so that other people can, can earn from your income. Not just to give away. You should give away in generosity, but that's not quite what this is saying. You know, when he, when he talks about your fields that you own, leave the corners so that people can work the corners and you have something to give them from your wealth. That's embedded in the societal guidelines and policies and rules of Israel. And when you don't do that, and you just say, no, I'm going to take it all. It's all mine. Private property. It's all mine. Well, guess what happens to the poor? They get oppressed. So here, it's just interesting that David is not saying the godly, the righteous. He's saying the oppressed, the poor. We talked about oppression last week from Psalm 12. I'll just briefly state again why people are oppressed. Remember, oppression or poverty is not just material poverty. It's broken relationships, broken relationship with God, with people, broken relationships within yourself, self-perception, and then broken relationships with creation, not having enough to do, not having the skill to earn or whatever the case. It's broken relationships. That's poverty with God, with yourself, with others, and with creation. We think of it exclusively today as a materially poor, which is not wrong as part of it, but it's just not the whole picture. And we talked about four reasons why people are oppressed. Why are four, what, what, does anyone here remember, just by way of review, any of the four reasons why people are oppressed? Anyone? It's okay if you don't, but one of them is demonic oppression. Anyone else? Evil people. Okay, that's the second reason why people are oppressed and poor. What else? Oppressive systems and personal, personal behavior. And all four of those are real. They have personal responsibility, choices. There are evil people who, even if they make the right choices, can, can attack them. Then there are systems that are not run necessarily by people who are intentionally doing it, but the system runs in such a way that oppresses people. And then there's demons that are all over this world who oppress people. And so those are the reasons why oppression happens. And here, David is saying that these sinners, these non-believers, these people who are outside the people of God, who consume the people of God, they frustrate the plans of the people of God. They frustrate their plans. They shame them. Do you know anyone shaming Christians for speaking the truth in love today? 
Can you guys point to any examples online or on social media or in the news where Christians are shamed for loving their neighbors by speaking the truth humbly in love? Does that happen today? It does, right? And here David is saying, you sinners, you frustrate the plans of the oppressed. Why do they frustrate the plans of the oppressed? It says, but in verse 6, you sinners frustrate the plans of the oppressed, but the Lord is his refuge. A better translation there is because or for. It's the same for, same word as for in verse 5. Why do they frustrate the plans of the oppressed? Because the Lord is his refuge. In other words, they don't ultimately hate God's people. Who do they hate? The Lord. Because God's people, we don't just say whatever we want, whenever we want. I mean, we can when we're sinning. But if we're following the Lord, we don't say whatever we want, whenever we want. We say what God wants us to say, right? We speak the truth in love, but it's not our truth. It's not the stuff we make up. We take the Bible, we take God's word, we take our gospel, and we speak it to people in love. And when they don't want God, they will frustrate the plans of the people of God. Jesus said this, didn't he? Don't be surprised if the world hates you. The world hated me before the world hated you. They hate you because you're mine. And so here they frustrate the plans of the oppressed because Yahweh is their refuge. They hate Yahweh. They ignore Yahweh. They marginalize Yahweh. They marginalize His word. And you know what? They might even actually think they're on God's side while they're doing it. Revelation 3.9. Revelation 3.9 Jesus encourages this weak church, the church in Philadelphia, I think. Yeah, the church in Philadelphia. Not America, Philadelphia, but ancient um, Asia, Philadelphia. I think it's ancient Asia. First century Philadelphia. Jesus says to the church, you're being persecuted by those who say they are true followers of God, but they are not a synagogue of God. They are a synagogue of Satan. And in the judgment day, I will come, and when I come, they will bow down to you, and they will know that I have loved you. I'm going, I'm going to show them. They're saying that they're God's people. I'm telling you, you're my people, you church, you small fledgling church, and I'm going to show them in the last day. They're going to bow before you and realize that I loved you and not them. This is what, John, what Jesus said in John 6, and this is not... This is not um, this is not surprising if you read Revelation. Revelation 13, 11, it, te- it talks about the second beast. There's a beast from the sea, but there's also a beast from the land. And he looks like a lamb. He has two horns like the lamb, but his voice is like the what? The dragon. His voice is like the dragon. It's not surprising that the church is confused today or in any day. The dragon looks like the lamb. He looks like the lamb. There will always be false Christians. There will always be false churches. There will always be false Christians, even in true churches, even in healthy churches. It has to be because the beast is here. Deception is here. Jesus said in John 16, 2 and 3, they will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering service to God. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. That's the reason why they do it. They don't know me. They don't know the Father. They think they're serving God, but they're not. Those who are unbelievers can easily be those outside the covenant community. That's not hard for us to figure out, right? But can they also be inside the covenant community? Yes, they can. Let me give you a story from number 16. In number 16, in number 16, um, there's the Levites. Moses and Aaron are Levites who are leading the people of Israel. And they were opposed um, by Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, three brothers who were also Levites. And they said, Moses and Aaron, you guys aren't the only leaders. You guys are self-exalting. We're all leaders. We're all holy. Um, we're all holy before the Lord. We're all set apart, not just you two. And so God told them all to meet together. So God had them meet, and then Korah, he got the whole assembly of Israel on his side to meet with him, to to be on his side in meeting with Moses and Aaron before God at the tent of meeting. And so they all meet with Moses and Yahweh, and then Yahweh says to Moses and Aaron, step aside so I can kill all these people. Like in front of them. So they're saying, we're all holy, and then they they get there, and then God tells Moses and Aaron, step to the side, I want to kill everybody here. I'm killing them all. And then Moses is like, no, please don't, Lord, don't kill them all, you know? And then God says, okay, fine, 
I'll only, I'll only judge, get away from Korah, Abiram, and Dathan. So, um, so then Moses says to the crowd, if God really is judging them, then let them die by an unnatural or by, by a, a means that is, uh, is clearly supernatural. And you know what happens? Anyone know the story? The ground opens up. So, so these three men and their wives and their children, their families, the ground opens up and just basically they fall, they fall into the ground and the ground closes back up. They get, like they get buried by God alive. And everyone is freaking out and they're all repenting or they're all you know, pleading with the Lord and God doesn't kill anyone but those three. So they're all claiming to be God's set-apart people, but these three were judged by God. You know what happens the very next day? The very next day, they go up to Moses. You know what they say to Moses? You killed Yahweh's people. <laughs> You're like, you killed Yahweh's people. It's your fault. You killed Yahweh's people. They were Yahweh's people. You're not Yahweh's people. You killed Yahweh's people. And then Moses, then God says, Moses, step aside. I'm about to kill these people. I'm about to kill all these fools. That's what he wants, you know. And then Moses pleads again, please. And he, he looks to Aaron. He says, Aaron, grab the, grab the fire pan, grab the incense burner, and go light it and make atonement right now. And so Aaron is running and doing it while God is literally, I mean, they're, they're, the, the assemblies, they're gathered, and God is sweeping a plague, and he's killing people. He's, a plague is just sweeping across the crowd, and God is killing people. By the time Aaron runs with the incense and makes the final atonement, Aaron is in the dividing line between those who have died and those who are still alive. And you know how many, how many died? 14,700 people died. God killed 15, just about 15,000 people in that instant with the plague spreading out of his anger at those who are saying, we're Yahweh's people. You're not Yahweh's people. You killed Yahweh's people. There has always been within the covenant community those who claim to be the true people of God and, those who, and, and there are true people and there are false people and they both claim to be Jesus' people, the Bible people, the gospel people, Yahweh's people. That always happens. It's always happened. It always will happen until Christ returns. They oppose, these people oppose the anointed ones, and in doing that, they oppose Yahweh. And that's why they will be judged, because they do not side with God's people, even if they claim they are actually God's people. So Christian, what does this mean for you? Realize that this world is filled with unbelieving fools. And realize that churches are filled with, maybe not filled with, hopefully, not healthy ones, but even, even healthy churches, all churches have unbelieving fools. Don't be surprised when you are consumed by this world. Don't be surprised when a fellow Christian in your own church or in churches consume you and attack you when you're speaking the truth in love. Don't be surprised. This is not, this is not coming out of left field. The only reason you'd be surprised is because you're not listening carefully to what the Bible's actually saying. This is not surprising. This is biblical. This is expected. You will suffer for following Jesus. When you follow Jesus, not by just saying you believe the gospel, but when you live with gospel intentionality and love in this world, you will be attacked. You have to be. There's no other way. Church family, let us continue to confess what we believe, which is our sixth statement in our confession of faith. God originally created man, male and female, in his own image and free from sin, but through the temptation of Satan, Adam and Adam sinned against God and fell from his original innocence, whereby his posterity inherits a nature corrupt, that's Psalm 14, and wholly opposed to God and his law. As a result, they are, all under, they are under condemnation, and as soon as they are capable of moral action, become actual transgressors. God is holy. God is the righteous judge who will still save sinners. So, focus on these two things. Unbelievers are sinful, and unbelievers sin against the just judge. I have a third point here, and this is my so that, because my main point was focus on these two things about God towards his enemies so that you live with longing and hope. And so point three is believers long and hope for Zion. Believers long and hope for Zion. Point one, unbelievers are sinful. Point two, unbelievers sin against the just judge. Point three, believers long and hope for Zion. That's verse seven. Look at verse seven. Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come from Zion. This is translated like a prayer. Lord, say, we can't wait until your deliverance, your salvation comes from your city, the city of God, Zion, Jerusalem. Salvation will come from your city. That's true, and we should pray for salvation, 
But I think that's actually not the best translation, though all the English translations translate that way. So I know I'm on shaky ground when I'm going to challenge the translation here. And I'm not even really that good at Hebrew, so take this with a grain of salt. But John Calvin did translate this way as well. Just, it's a clear Hebrew word. And the word is who. The, the sentence begins with who, and there's no who in this, in this. It says, oh. They make it like a prayer, but I know the Hebrew word for who, and it begins with who. So the question is, and the, maybe, maybe a more accurate translation is, who will give us deliverance from Zion? That's the question in verse 7. Who will give us deliverance from Zion? Now, David doesn't give the answer here, but who, who will give us deliverance from Jerusalem? Who will give salvation from Jerusalem, from God's city? Who gives, who gives salvation from, from Jerusalem? You guys tell me, who? Who? Jesus does. Does David know anything about Jesus? Maybe he doesn't know his name, but does he know anything about Jesus in his lifetime? Yes? What does he know? God promised David that from his own descendants, someone will sit on his throne, and he will reign how long? Forever. David knows his throne will be established forever. David doesn't know all the details that we know about Jesus, but he does know this. When David is looking at this world, this is how you long for heaven. You see all the sin in the world. You see everyone sinning against God by their nature and by their choice and by rejecting God's people and God's truth spoken by God's people, where they consume God's people and reject God. And when you get so filled with that in your life, you ask what David asks. Who's going to save us from this mess? Who will save us? Who will give us deliverance and salvation from Zion? David's, the answer for David and the answer for you is David's son, Jesus the Messiah. He is the one who will bring deliverance. He will be from Jerusalem. He will die in Jerusalem, right? And he'll rise from the dead in Jerusalem to bring salvation to all of those who will be united to him. David must have looked forward to that future promise. I have a question for you. Do you look forward to Christ's return? Are you so fed up and overwhelmed by your sin and the sin of this world and the brokenness that you long for Christ to return? That you pray, when was the last time you prayed a heartfelt, deep heartfelt prayer, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus? When was the last time you longed for the second coming and you put more hope in that than your secondary good prayers of praying for things to be resolved on earth? We often put our priority in prayer on the resolution on earth and not the final resolution. David challenges our presupposition there and says, you got it backwards. Yes, pray for healing from cancer for Tim Keller or for our other loved ones. Pray for that, sure. But that's not the final solution, is it? That's not the final redemption. And that shouldn't be our final. But our emotions are far more attracted to the, the, the temporary solution than the final one, Right? But when you're overwhelmed by the brokenness of this world, we long for heaven. Not only do we long for heaven, we hope in heaven. Look at the end of verse 7, the last part here. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, and he will when he does it, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. When the Lord restores the fortunes of the people. Not if the Lord will restore the fortunes of his people. Is God going to restore the fortunes of his people? Is God going to bring a full restoration? Will the meek truly inherit the earth? Will you inherit the earth? Will you rule the kingdom to come? Yes or no? Yes, you will if you're in Christ. It's not if. It's, 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 it's certain. It's positive. It's going to happen. You will rule. This, was, this sure kingdom hope was there for David. It was there for Adam and Eve. When Eve was kicked out of the garden, Adam was kicked out of the garden, that someone would crush Satan's head. It was the hope for Noah. It was the true hope for Abraham for all of Israel, for the prophets after David. When Jesus came, he said, the kingdom of God is what? Here, at hand. And when Christ rose from the dead, the Israel, the, the, the Jewish uh, disciples, the 12 apostles, or maybe the 11, they asked Jesus, are you going to restore your kingdom now? And Jesus said, it's not time for you to know that yet. Keep witnessing for me in Acts chapter 1. And they keep waiting for the kingdom. But restoration is coming, not possibly coming, inevitably coming. Read Revelation 22, 10 to the end of the book. Read the last 13 verses of the Bible for homework. What you'll see there is Jesus saying, I am coming. Surely I'm coming. And he's going to invite the world, come. The spirit and the bride say, come. Anyone who's thirsty, come. 
Let those who are hungry come. Let those who are thirsty come. But also let the filthy still be filthy. Let the evil still be evil. Let the immoral still be immoral. If you're going to keep on sinning and rejecting, then you will be judged. But anyone who's hungry and thirsty, come. Because Jesus is coming. And the restoration is certain. If you're not a Christian, Jesus is inviting you to come to him. To come to him for salvation. And this command of rejoicing in verse 7, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. That is an individual application and a corporate application. We need to be a, joy, a rejoicing and glad church family. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And individually as well. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. How should we rejoice? Rejoice like a family member who's receiving back their husband or father from a long deployment overseas. Be glad like a newly minted graduate who re- who's relieved from all the pressures of school. Be excited, like, be excited now like a fiancé whose wedding day is tomorrow. Rejoice like a persecuted, Christian fi- a persecuted Christian who finally receives peace and justice. Be glad like a quadriplegic. I'm thinking of Johnny Erickson Tata now. Be glad like a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck down for, for decades hearing the trumpet of Christ's sound and getting the resurrected body that she had been waiting for for decades. Seeing Christ face to face, living with Him, seeing all His people redeemed and resurrected to rejoice and be glad and celebrate on a new earth forever and ever and ever. Brothers and sisters, our greatest joys, our deepest desires, our most fervent prayers are to, be filled at the, are to be fulfilled at the restoration to come and not ultimately in the temporary blessings, the foretastes of that consummation. Your greatest days are ahead of you, not behind you. How can we as sinners then, how can we, I mean, if we're sinners, how can we as sinners be filled with this joy, hope, and gladness and love when we deserve judgment for our sins? like David deserved. How can we be filled with hope, joy, and love, and gladness? How, if we're sinners? Because Jesus was filled with dread. Was Jesus filled with dread? Do you remember a time when Jesus was filled with dread? Not just partly, but where He was overwhelmed with dread? That He was sweating drops like blood? And that He, he, he went to God not once, Not twice, but three times, pleading and begging God, please, Lord, if there's some way, please take this cup from me. Please, Lord, there has to be another way. Right, Lord? No? Okay, I'm going to come back again and again. Do I have to drink this cup of wrath? He was filled with terror. He was filled with dread so that you could be filled with joy and hope and longing and love. He trusted God. He faced, it, he faced his biggest fear. And, he didn't, and for us, a lot of times our fears are bigger than reality, right? For Jesus, the fear wasn't bigger than reality. The reality was bigger than the fear. It's one thing to fear the cup, but then he actually had to drink it. He actually had to be damned by God on the cross for those three hours, on the cro- uh, for, on those three hours in darkness, hanging there being forsaken and abandoned by God for our sins. Jesus died for sinners. He rose from the dead. And now he reminds us that judgment is coming and salvation is coming. So if you're not a Christian, you ought to be filled with dread. And if you are a Christian, you ought to be filled with joy and hope and longing. Brothers and sisters, look at Jesus. Look to Jesus' coming. Pray Maranatha from your heart. Set your mind on things above and not on the things of this earth. If you don't, you will live for earthly things. And you'll either join the world's sins eventually or you'll isolate yourself in selfishness and self-righteousness. You look at the world in their sin, but you won't be mourning. You won't be longing. You won't be thinking about heaven. You'll just be self-righteously looking down on others like a Pharisee. But if you look to Christ's coming and you long for it, you will express righteous and humble anger toward the world and towards the brokenness and sin. And you will, uh, you will love others in this world well as you long for Christ's return. Let's pray. Father, take this word. 
hide it in our hearts that we would not sin against you. Forgive us for self-righteous distance from the world in judgment and arrogance on the one hand and forgive us for syncretizing with the world and just joining in their sins on the other. Give us a love for our neighbors rooted in a longing for the consummation. And help us to pour out our lives here towards our neighbors and among the unreached nations. In Jesus' name, amen.